Hello, everyone, and welcome again to Radio Gripe. Uh, this is part two of our creature comforts. No, <sighs> so close. Uh, we've been exploring the golden era of movie magic pre-CGI. Um, we've been looking at some of our favorite scenes, favorite yeah. creatures. Just favorite stuff. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. So first off, uh, I'm Joe. I'm Jen. And uh, this is a show where we kind of just do whatever we want. And right now, we're talking about movie creatures. And, and we we did like some TV and uh, different mediums too. It doesn't always have to be film. Before we get into the meat of the matter, uh, I do want to say a couple of things. A little bit of house cleaning. A, if you're a listener to the show on a regular basis, you probably know that we cover a lot of news. And there is a lot of news going on right now. Uh, Myanmar, I'm looking at you. Uh, things are getting really rough over there uh, with the military junta and the protests and uh, really, really graphic scenes. So we'll kind of get back on track with a lot of that hard stuff as it's coming up over the next week. Uh, also in the news, uh, the Royals, fuck them. It's basically all we got to say there. Saw that coming. Yeah. And so but there's that. Not Harry and Meghan. No, no, they're fine. Well, here's, they're not Royals. I mean, they are. Well... She's the Duchess of Sussex. Sussex. Duchess of Sussex. It's a it's a great title. It sounds it really rolls off. He's the a prince. He's a prince, Sari. Uh, I wish nothing but the best for those two. But that's a whole other story that we're not gonna like really care about this week. Uh, something that I do care about though, and I want y'all to. Uh, KBSR is hitting its one year anniversary uh, this coming week on uh, March eighteenth. There you go. It was it was a year ago that things started getting real with lockdowns and uh, South by got canceled and an off South by event that the Black Sparrow was doing also decided to call it off uh, in the wake of everything. The very next day, a sound booth was built and a radio station was formed. Uh, that was that was the immediate move. That is a quick turnaround. Very impressive. Yeah, that is Shannon, who is more about representing artists than I don't know, making money or anything. <laughs> it's all about just representing art and artists. Shannon is a very resourceful woman. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, congratulations. Uh, congratulations, Davenport, the very first DJ. He'll be doing his one-year anniversary show this coming week. So yeah, stay tuned. There's probably going to be tons of fun stuff coming out over the next week, week or two uh, over the anniversary as shows are celebrating. But with all that said, let's move on into it. So... So yeah, we decided to make it a two-part series. Last week, we talked about fantasy. A little bit of sci-fi. A little bit of sci-fi. Today, we're going to be talking about some horror movies. So if you don't like that, I guess go ahead and... Go ahead and get over it. No, I don't know. It's I, I can get it if it's not your thing, but really, I just... Uh... Why would it not be your thing, you know? I have a more expansive conception of this genre. I'm willing to put almost anything in the horror genre if it's uh, whether or not it wants to be. It's all about my reaction to it. And um, I, yeah, I think some of the best uh, people working with that genre today are utilizing it to express what they want to express. They're utilizing those horror movie tropes. And um, yeah, some people might not want to, you know, put a Ari Aster or a Jordan Peele uh, in that genre because they're, you know, they're making some sort of distinctions there about how self-consciously you can work using those uh, tropes. But 
I say it's all good. It's all in there. Yeah. But we're going to be talking today about some special effects. Yeah. We had uh, also reached out to get opinions uh, from everybody, and uh, we got some feedback from an old friend of mine, Patrick Charles. And he's an amateur special effects artist. Uh, I know him from Salt Lake City, and uh, he has some good things to say. Patrick Charles. I'm an amateur special effects artist and, you know, just maker of strange kind of sci-fi dark art based in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, if you want to check my workout, I have an Instagram. It's uh, punkpat88. And I was invited here today um, to talk to you all about uh, movie monsters and some of the creators. And I'm so happy to be on this podcast. Radio Gripe. Yeah, so, thank you so much for having me. I paused there, so if you want to insert the name, you know, you can cut this part out, but... No. So when I think back about, you know, special effects monsters, what really stands out in my mind would be John Carpenter's uh, remake of The Thing. It's got amazing effects. You know, you have heads tearing off people's bodies and wandering around spider legs. You have bodies ripping open, chewing off people's arms. And you've got this great alien that mimics what it touches so you know it, it shows uh some of the animals it's come in contact with some of the huskies uh but also there's a combination of things that possibly came into contact with in outer space rob botton did the effects and they still hold up there's a few things here and there that you're kind of like but uh overall i mean it's really great creature design the way the effects are pulled off the way they're shot and if I'm if I'm not mistaken, if I remember correctly, Rob Bond actually did spend like a week or two in the hospital after production had wrapped. He's even working straight for a year just for exhaustion. But I think when it comes down to it, that's one of my favorites. Another one would be Rick Baker's, you know, effects he did for John Landis's American Wolf in London. You know, the transformation scenes in that movie are they're just great. And the werewolf itself is actually pretty scary. And no matter how many times they release it on DVD, Blu-ray, 4K how much they clean up the film, it still looks really, really good. When I think it comes down to it, favorite, favorite monster would probably be the alien from Ridley Scott's Alien. Um, you know, say what you want to about the recent sequels or prequels. I still enjoy them, but that first movie, when you've got it kind of creeping around the Nostromo, you know, taking people out, it's just great. You know, the fact that, you know, Dan O'Bannon, the writer, really pushed to have H.R. Geyer design it is probably one of the, the best team up ever. It's this weird mesh of teeth and raw, weird sexuality with phallic and vaginal symbols all over it. And it's reproductive cycle, too. I mean, come on. I want to talk about some of my favorite um, special effects artists. You know, the first would probably be Rick Baker. The Things he's done over the course of his career from aliens, werewolves, monsters. You know, he was the go-to guy for gorilla suits in Hollywood. His work has standed the test of time. Um, you know, it's a shame that, you know, he's retired at this point. But I think he, you know, he's going to go down as one of the most influential and probably one of the best special effects artists, you know, of that time period. Like 70s, 80s, 90s. Another favorite of mine is Rob Botton. who did the effects for like RoboCop, Total Recall, 
you know, there's a bunch of other stuff. He did the movie David Fincher 7. His work is just so visceral. It just leaves a mark on you when you see it. And then a personal, you know, favorite of mine is Tom Savini. He's worked on like Friday 13th, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, uh, dozens of slasher movies in the 80s. And what I really like about his work is, one, he's a great sculptor. He's designed a lot of great monsters. But he's the guy who shows up on set with his makeup box and asks, you know, what do we need? You know, you need a face, you know, somebody's face ripped off. Okay, you know, give me an hour. You know, some of the things he's done just like out of the kit with mortician's wax, you know, some latex, fake blood is extremely memorable. There you go. Uh, thank you for having me on here. Hopefully I didn't you know, run it too long, but uh, yeah, thanks. Also this last week, uh, we watched Scare Package, uh, the movie, which featured uh, music by our buddy Alex Cuervo, uh, Spectrostatic. And uh, if you're if you're looking for a good movie with some you know cheesy good old fashioned gore and special effects uh, and it's just a fun time, yeah, go check out Scare Package. It's a lot of fun. Not a paid endorsement, just I enjoyed it. Kind of calling it back to last week though. Uh, I had talked about Gremlins a little bit, but apparently they had done a commercial for Mountain Dew, a, a zero sugar Mountain Dew, featuring uh, Zach Galligan uh, from Gremlins. He plays Billy and Gizmo. Uh, so yeah, it, it's, it's just a, whatever, it's a plug. People have talked about Gremlins three, four years now, and whoever knows they are bringing back an animated series to, uh, HBO max or whatever. Uh, yeah. Mm, Okay. But so I love this interview so much. Like at first, you know, um, they're talking to him and he's like, Hey, was it, was it like hard for you to come back? Like, you know, uh, what do you think? And he's like, well, you know, Billy. Yeah. And he says, you know, once I found out that uh, Steven Spielberg was on board, I knew this was going to be quality production. In a Mountain Dew commercial, apparently Spielberg was attached, right? So that's kind of interesting. So here's where it gets fun. What determines where and when you can actually feed mogwai and what can they eat because they're so prone to getting wet? Yeah, it's almost impossible to follow these rules when you consider how many time zones there are. It's always after midnight somewhere. Zach Galligan says... Well, it is a very complicated and complex situation. Obviously, one that I've given tremendous amount of thought to over the last few decades. Obviously. Clearly, the thing that's the most important is that the midnight timestamp signature has to be within the respective time zone that you're in. And if you are in one of those pockets that do not uh, uh, subscribe to daylight savings time, you could just be in a town, a disincorporated township. And midnight could be yeah. an hour off. Sure. So there, you got things like this. Uh, insofar as traveling, he says, first of all, probably shouldn't put Gizmo on a plane to begin with. It's probably a bad idea. We it's, all know what happens when there are gremlins on, a, on plane. a plane. I know that you've mentioned a few times that you have an idea for Gremlins 3. His response is, yes, I have many ideas for Gremlins 3. <laughs> I've had three decades to think about it. <laughs> so he intimates here that... Chris Columbus has hinted that on Gremlins 3 script that he's written, he's going to go darker and more of a Batman tone. I'm going to tell you right now, I don't want to see a fucking gritty reboot of Gremlins. Mm. Zach Galligan's apparently all about it. He's like, yeah, that's what the kids like. He recounts a tale of uh, the premiere at the Chinese theater. And this is pretty funny. Uh, He's talking about his co-star. He's like, Phoebe was sitting in a row ahead of me at the Chinese theater and about two seats over to my right. If she looked over her left shoulder, she could look back and make eye contact with me. 
<laughs> like there's there's something a little funny. He's talking about this like he remembers it like it's yesterday. And he's well, talking anything about involving Phoebe Cates. You're you're gonna understand it right? for the rest of your life. But during this premiere, everybody's going absolutely crazy in the theater with laughing and screaming and everything else. He says that was the moment where we kind of knew, based on just the absolute chaos. It was like what you imagine you hear when you hear about Stravinsky's Rites of Spring, where there's a riot <laughs> after they do the concert. That's what it felt like. It felt like the roof of the building was going to come off after that oh, one. Oh wow. <laughs> yeah and he ain't wrong when he says the movie really builds up beautifully and then when they hatch out and start releasing the havoc people are not ready for it uh yeah it turns on a dime the script moving into this potential third movie we know how they turn out when they're hit by water would the gremlins that are created by being splashed with mountain dew be different and would they have different inclinations for what they want to watch god help us i think they would I think they would be a little bit more energetic. Whenever I have Mountain Dew, I always get a bit of a rush. Although now, of course, with Mountain Dew Zero Sugar, that might be lessened somewhat, but this, maybe not. This is such a great pivot. <laughs> it's fucking beautiful, beautiful pivot. They kind of just handed it to him. Uh, and he goes on to, I don't know if you've ever had this conversation, but uh, why does he have a chemical reaction with Mountain Dew, but not beer? Uh in the movie, the gremlins get splashed with beer in the bar scene, and the logical answer is that the alcohol acts as, you know, as a non-catalyst agent for the chemical reaction. It basically stops the growth of the chemical reaction, because alcohol is oftentimes an extremely damaging thing as well. You see what it does to the human body over time. So it tends to inhibit growth as opposed to promote it, whereas Mountain Dew tends to promote the growth as opposed to inhibit it. So Zach Galligan, uh, clearly on cocaine after all these years... I know you said you, you don't really want to talk about slasher movies too much here. We did start this and we want to talk about creatures. Uh, Tom Savini was, was mentioned earlier and you did want to talk about him. Yeah. The yeah, godfather bit. of splatter punk. The sultan of splatter. Sorry, the sultan of splatter. I mean, just briefly to say, so this guy's you know catalog was all over the place. Uh, he did a lot of work with Romero, you know, back in the day and everything. He's actually done a lot of acting too. He's had a whole lot of acting roles over the years. He's been... As a zombie? Yeah, he's been zombies in movies that he was doing special effects on. Uh, I think we all know him best as Sex Machine from Dusk Till Dawn. A, a film he also worked on. Uh, yeah, he played a biker with a gun. Zombie-busting biker. Vampire. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh my god. Vampi yeah. Vampire yeah, yeah. buster. <laughs> Man, I need to rewatch that movie. There's yeah, so it's fair. I, I, f I feel like that was one of Tarantino's better films because I don't feel like he wasn't he wasn't as full of himself on that fucking movie. Know Talk what I mean? about a tone shift in that one mm -hmm, too, mm -hmm, and I mm -hmm. love this. I love when a movie just shifts to a different fucking movie. Yeah, just halfway through in this instance. Yeah, and I could even skip the first half and just move right on to the titty twister. Right. Right. Yeah. He did get a start in uh, the early 80s, and 
doing not just uh, makeup effects, which he was pretty well known for doing uh, injuries, but he also did the practical effects behind creating the injuries, uh, lacerations, uh, gunshots. The main thing that I wanted to mention was this. Uh, he was well known for this, and on and throughout the 80s, David Letterman uh, had him on his show several times. I, I don't like David Letterman. Never have. And uh, I'm kind of on a range of either... I mean, it's... Between not liking David Letterman and getting really fucking tired of hearing about David Letterman. That's about as far as my range There's people you, goes. and then people that are super predatory within their industry. I don't know if... That... And then there's the Venn diagram of those two things that's just a circle. And so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's David Letterman for me. I, I don't like him. But... And also him, you know, fucking Bill Hicks around and everything back then. Uh, part of that was the producers, but whatever. The point is, uh, David Lennerman kind of has this shtick, you know, where he's kind of always annoyed by the things that he has to go through on the show. And uh, as time went on, uh, Savini was getting a little bit more hands-on, was showing them this is how we do this, this is how we do that. And uh, at one point, this was great, they, they put this whole rig on the back of Letterman's head uh, right there, you know, like while they were filming. Uh, head rig. Yeah, head on rig. Letterman. And they had him stand in front of, you know, just a white wall to really kind of catch the effect. And then they popped it. Uh, and it was really satisfying to see that, uh, that like basically what would be an exit wound uh, from being shot in the head. But it was prefaced with about a minute and a half of, you know, David Letterman being a little bitch about it, the whole thing. Uh oh, sure. Yeah, so uh, I'll drop a link uh, maybe on the Instagram to go watch this supercut of all the times that uh, Tom Savini has been on David Letterman showing how he's doing things. And it is really interesting. He shows a whole lot of the different makeup effects and special effects that he's done in different movies over the years. It's, it's about an hour of him. If he handled David Letterman for about an hour, it's I mean, mostly it, Tom Savini. I would just say, like, at the very least, make a boomerang of Letterman's head getting blown off and just throw that up. Yeah, yeah. We'll see if I do that. You can go anywhere with a zombie movie, too. You can um, you can do it on the cheap with your friends. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, I think a lot of people end up, you know, getting their start doing a horror movie and it's a zombie movie. Yeah. Well, this, that's the impression I get with Peter Jackson's Bad Taste, uh, mm -hmm. too. I, I don't know the story behind Bad Taste, but... I've I never have, seen it. I feel like that's like a first that's a first movie uh you're very you're very right and so uh night of the living dead comes out then it's starting to get some traction and they want to kind of like make more movies based off of this and uh romero goes with tom savini to do from like right on he did uh i want to say dawn of the dead and uh day of the dead mm -hmm. right and um he actually did the remake, he directed the remake in 1990 of Night of the Living Dead. And I think I might have seen that one, but it doesn't stick in my memory as much as the original, obviously. So, Living Dead is a blanket term for the loosely connected horror franchise that originated from the 68 film Night of the Living Dead. But the franchise takes, it splinters off into two different directions. From George Romero and John A. Russo. Ah, Russo, that's right. Right. I, I, rem I recall one movie that Russo did that I particularly liked... So he was the one that ran the Living Dead. Living some, Dead, some that's such. Right. Yeah, okay. Tom Savini, a, a fucking legend, and has his own school uh, at this point, or has for some time. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, where he, he kind of passes on these trades. Yeah. 
Well, to move on to the slasher genre, uh, which defined the 70s and 80s, people could not get enough. Uh, these movies are formulaic. But most movies in the post-80s slasher genre are more dark comedies that dissect and mock the formulaic nature of the slasher, uh, like the Scream series and, uh, as you mentioned earlier, Scare Package. That's really what it's all about. I mean, it's right. yeah, it's kind of an anthology uh, yeah. done by different directors, but bound up in, you know... A fucking beautiful package. You know what? I was sitting today, outside of work, I was having a beer with Lily, and uh, and I said, yeah, we just watched this movie, Scare Package, and... I know it's got to be a pun, but I haven't figured it out yet. And she said, care, care package? package? Yeah, I fucking literally <laughs> didn't get it until she said oh, it. Yeah. Yolly. And uh, so, yeah, this is this is uh, this this film is a beautiful care package of horror mm-hmm. uh, to you. And I honestly, I fucking love it. I'm, I'm trying to not overhype it, but I enjoyed it a lot. Well, so you see this subversion of the genre and you can see it in something more serious like It Follows, which isn't really a slasher, but takes the the trope of like a teen girl has to be virginal in order to survive. And yeah, there's intimations of sort of being being tainted by sexual contact and having to spread it to others. Well, it's a whole movie. Y'all should see it. Uh, the pinnacle of the slasher was John Carpenter, debatably, I guess. The pinnacle of the slasher was John Carpenter's Halloween in 1978. Oh, yeah. Uh, and I say that mainly because most people don't consider Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which came out the same year, to be a slasher. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just kind of a whole other level. It's a whole other type of experience. It's a psycho horror kind of thing, yeah. By 1984, this genre was getting pretty stale. But Wes Craven's Nightmare on Elm Street revitalized it with the idea that the homicidal maniac that's killing kids can do it in their dreams. Mm-hmm. kills can be whatever you want to do you're only <laughs> confined to dream logic uh you can make it as surreal as you want uh you can turn the kids into marionettes with their own tendons yeah this shit was wild <laughs> you can attack them with maybe their own you know teenage insecurities like their hearing aids and asthma inhalers uh if they're coping with drug addiction if they're secretly gay freddie has got a way to torture them yeah yeah you got a whole rainbow of shit there oh my god and in the atmosphere of the 80s, Freddy becomes less a villain and more anti-hero. People love him. He had marketing tie-ins, talking dolls, uh, child-sized Halloween costumes. There was an album, Freddy's Greatest Hits, by the Elm Street Group. Wait, I, we're going to play some, right? Oh, I'm quite happy okay. to put in a little <laughs> clip of Do the Freddy. Do the... F- oh my god. I'm Freddy, and this is for you. Hear the happy feet dancing to the beat of the Freddy. Yeah. <laughs> As they're just going to say it over and over, they're like, do yeah. the Freddy. Do the Freddy. And then Freddy comes in going, <laughs> bitch. Bitch. Yeah. Probably not on that track. Probably but not, no. That who was the fuck is buying this album? A little bit more I'd of a like family affair. Uh, yeah. Fucking who indeed. So, in a slasher franchise, there's only one guy that comes back for every movie. Sure. You're never going to see anybody else again. Jordan Peele, who's producing the upcoming Candyman, which oh, I'm yeah. super stoked about. Nice. Uh, here's a quote from him. Freddy's funny. You know him. You identify with him. You don't know these new motherfuckers coming to get killed. They're just sheep for the slaughter. <laughs> 
So, I mean, that's how... Well, well said, yeah. These uh, villains become sort of the hero of the movie because they are recognizable. And unlike... He does stop being scary kind of quickly, unless you're quite young. But uh, Freddy likes puns a lot. Uh, he makes liberal use of the word bitch, uh, yeah. as you mentioned, yeah. which is not scary. It's more of a Jesse Pinkman vibe. Yeah. I feel like they kind of busted that out uh, to be temporally relevant, make sure they were so fresh with the kids or something. Actually, I want to take a minute to talk about one guy in particular. He is all over the place when it comes to practical effects, makeup effects, and everything else. Stan Winston. So here's some of his bona fides. 1978's The Wiz. We've got Friday the 13th, Part 3, 1982. Uh, The Terminator, Aliens, Monster Squad, 1987. Predator, 1987. Pumpkinhead, 1988. That was his directorial debut. Edward Scissorhands, Predator 2, Terminator 2, Jurassic Park, Batman Returns, Interview with a Vampire, The Island of Dr. Moreau. That's one that, like, it's not like uh, popular movie monsters, but does, does, did involve, like, a lot of shit. It did a lot. Yeah. um, So, it goes on from there. Um, I will mention Galaxy Quest and leave it at that. More specifically, I'll talk about The Terminator and uh, one of my all-time favorites, Predator. Uh, the Terminator, uh, which was selected by the Library of Congress in 2008 to be preserved on account of being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Here's what I think. They couldn't really pick one. Hot they just kind of, yeah, hot take. I think Carl Sagan style, we need to put it on a capsule and shoot it into space. Okay. Just to warn everybody that might come into our solar system. That we've thought about Terminators. Stay the fuck away. away. (laughs) They'll think it's a documentary. So the Terminator had some pretty wild shit going on, uh, specifically in uh, the sequel. You remember the liquid metal villain? Who could forget? Right. So he was put through a lot of abuse uh, with his head exploding or the scene where he was kind of cleaved through with an iron rod. Mm. Uh, Those were actually like mostly practical effects. Really? Yeah. They had spring-loaded puppetry. They had kind of made a mold of the the actor's head and then split it open and did this large thing and then kind of tucked it back in. And then just had this thing where the springs popped and the scene where he was uh, cleft through. Uh, they crafted a suit for it. And uh, Robert Patrick was the actor for that. He just kind of tucked his right arm back and they positioned the camera for a good angle and just fucking let her rip. And this like thing kind of popped off. And so that was actually a practical effect that they kind of filled in uh, with a little bit of CGI probably. Uh, Predator though... That whole thing was a full bodysuit, painstakingly created in a pretty short amount of time. Uh, The initial design was far too complicated. Uh, It kind of lacked character. And Jean-Claude Van Damme really hated wearing it. So they scrapped that, and they scrapped Van Damme. Scrapped Van Damme. And Stan Winston designed a new character portrayed by Kevin Peter Hall. uh, And they kind of just made this kind of easier to maneuver bodysuit and and remade the character kind of in its entirety uh and all, it is all the same absolutely they, iconic at the end of the day still weighed 200 pounds sounds about right and of course there was a you know bungee rig too for, to for help some of movements. the scenes yeah and they were shooting this 
you know, not on a soundstage, but on an air-conditioned soundstage, but on site. Like, yeah, actually. In a wooded area. Yeah, jungles. They were they were in the jungles of uh, Central South America. Kevin Peter Hall is yeah. seven foot three inches tall. Yeah. This man towers over Arnold Schwarzenegger. I, I did find it pretty interesting that... This was Jean-Claude Van Damme's, uh, supposed to be like one of his first big movies, uh, but he was just kind of delegated to stunt double and he fucking hated it. <laughs> and uh, they had the scenes where to do the visual effects of him being invisible, they had to, this was somewhat like a green screen effect where they had him wear a red suit and they would do two takes of it and then color him out to make this visual effect. So that was still... Yeah, mostly this is, like a practical effect. This is pre CGI, so what what this is is uh, uh, chroma key compositing. Yeah. So when you put that all red suit in a green jungle, uh, jungle, um, you basically in post to get that uh, jungle camouflage. Mm-hmm. You fill it with a slightly wider shot of the same jungle. So it just looks like a distortion of light. Yeah. yeah. Really fucking cool. It was fucking brilliant honestly and one of the things that stood out to me was the glowing green blood yeah right which consisted of what now glow stick fluid mixed with ky jelly yeah 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 uh you got to get inventive uh and they totally made it work you one ugly motherfucker Since we're talking about sci-fi horror, um, maybe I'll come back to what I was thinking about talking about, and uh, let's let's take a moment to talk about Alien, uh, yeah, nineteen seventy nine, and of course Aliens. This movie was directed by Ridley Scott. Ron Cobb worked on the human environment, and then H.R. Geiger, of course, developed the creatures and the alien habitat. Yeah, just the set design and everything is so incredible. Uh, Ridley Scott, you know, found H.R. Geiger, who is a Swiss artist who studied architectural industrial design. Um, He wanted to avoid doing, like, a person in a suit, uh, even though they were working on a really small budget. Right. Specifically, he wanted the alien to be beautiful and graceful. He wanted... Uh, the alien habitat to look like a gothic uh, gothic cathedral floating in space. Mm-hmm. Turn to H.R. Geiger for his designs. The imagery from this movie is so amazing. The derelict ship and its pilot, which you know involved real bones and the construction of dissection of the face hugger scene mm-hmm. i guess they they went out and got a bunch of seafood they got so yeah they scallops and... so the face huggers uh proboscis uh that would extend down a person's esophagus was actually a sheep intestines mm. and when they did the autopsy yeah they uh yeah they went and got a bunch of shellfish and various uh, seafood to use for viscera but they were using actual viscera in this this was late 70s stuff uh, before this, before like latex and foam really started getting better looking you, you know? can't do uh, yeah. that anymore and so can't i do feel, therefore i feel like you can't get the same level of realism and i think yeah. a lot of the movies the scenes that we're talking about cannot be done anymore yeah. in this era uh, you wanna, because there are rules and regulations you want to talk about hygiene a, practices a piece of realism that from this that is almost uh kubrick onic is that uh, where there's the chest bursting scene? Yeah. 
uh, all the actors on set knew that there was going to be this puppet busting out of a fake torso and John Hurt was uh, under under the shelf with his head poking out, right. right? But nobody knew that there were going to be blood splatters. And they had tubes with fake blood in them uh, that were meant to like pop out a lot of fake blood. Nobody expected that. The, the look of surprise on the actors' faces. Yeah. Um, it's, very, it's genuine and it's in the final take. Uh, what's her name? Uh, that like fell over in hysterics. That was, that was genuine. Uh, can I also just mention though, real quick, what you said and didn't say anything further on. Yes. They used real human skulls in the construction of the actual like costume for this. They purchased three skulls from India. The story kind of goes that there was a question about this. Once they received them, I started looking at them because the teeth were all in very good shape and they seemed to be very, very good specimens considering that they were medical skulls, like medical supply skulls coming from a different country. They were really easy to get. They were like $700 a piece or something. Uh, There was a period of time where genuine human uh, remains are easier to come by than replications. Some years after after this, a moratorium was put on uh, the country of India for selling uh, medical skeletons yeah it's kind of fucked up yeah um but hey that's how i would want to go if i had to uh dedicate my remains to science fuck I would yeah dude love that i would love to rewatch these movies it would mean so much to me to right. be able to talk about it from like having recently rewatched these movies yeah. but uh it's been a long time but it's been something that's really lingered in my brain and one of the things was when Ash the Android is mm-hmm. bisected and is, you know, in his death throes, not human. He's an android and he's got this sort of milk and pasta guts yeah. uh, coming out of him. And that is milk and pasta along with other things. Some caviar, some fiber optic cables, and actually a couple of catheters, catheter tubes. Yeah. It's a beautiful scene. That Everything was just so well designed in this and... Uh, this movie didn't have a huge budget, so they a lot of it is the Ridley Scott's directing, mm-hmm. uh, knowing when to shed like full clinical light on something like the chest burster, like birthing scene, right? Uh, and knowing when to keep things shrouded in darkness, like he was. Uh, I, I forget the quote, but he had said something to the effect of. Uh, it's it's not seeing the monster that scares you, but it's what you think you saw. Yeah. Yeah. No, he knows how to make a movie. Right. And the, uh, I think we've maybe seen some footage online. Uh, I, I saw some footage on YouTube where they, they had the actor in the, in the suit try to, uh, scramble across the floor in a more, you know, animalistic fashion. And it, it mm-hmm. looks ridiculous. And it would have, it, literally spoils the entire illusion of what the alien is and it's that it's yeah it's a it's not some sort of human in a suit it is something unfathomable something completely alien so geiger as a uh industrial architect or engineer um he is function in all things and so whenever the design was given given to him to have this kind of elongated head for the alien he said this needs to serve a purpose so it was his idea to have this kind of secondary, like long tongue with like, he had the idea for the long tongue and then really Scott was like, Ooh, put extra teeth on it, you know? And 
they, they kind of put this together um, to to make a a function to every bit of the form that he was creating. Yeah, I find it's it, fucking fascinating. I feel like it's fascinating that he has a background in architecture and does not have any background in uh, like entomology. And this, I'm not saying that it's insectile exactly, but it has the like grace and confidence of. It has a it has a purposefulness. A living, yeah, a purposefulness of yeah. a living creature. And also, uh, as as we point out, with the idea of the exoskeleton, right. And, uh, also, this like caustic blood. Uh, right. Yeah. You know, there's so much that can be said about fears associated with birth and sexuality. Uh, there's a lot of visual imagery that evokes birth and sexuality, penetration and rape, explicitly kind of female sexuality, but it has these phallic, it has like the design of it has all this phallic imagery because that's sort of what H.R. Geiger does. Yeah. Well, I mean both because if, so we see a few different life cycles for this creature mm-hmm. and we can see in uh, the face hugger this, uh, this more kind of like vaginal orifice that is its mouth. And as it goes through, it ends up becoming more phallic as it needs to then procreate. But we understand them still to be yes. essentially asexual, right? Like they they reproduce asexually so far well, as they, we know. They like, reproduce like, I guess, parasitically. Yeah. Uh, which is different. Fucking, yeah. <laughs> <Shit>. <laughs> God, I'm like so fascinated with it right now. Sure. Yeah, yeah when, when Nature Geiger was uh, building the models, he was using all kinds of things. Uh, A- fucking human skulls uh yeah. <laughs> be uh fucking various like uh cables and uh you know hoses yeah, from and, like and cars different and, and uh, different types of like viscera end up going yeah. on the in- internal model of the alien and you know you gotta have your mucus lots of mm-hmm. mucus lots of mucus Super lots of important. acid how do we kill it ash there's gotta be a way of killing it how how do we do it you can't. Bullshit. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. You admire it. I admire its purity. I think we should move into body horror... Uh, yeah, but uh, getting into body horror, what really stands out to me, another one of my, you know, old time faves is, of course, Hellraiser by uh, Clive Barker. Clive Barker, kind of a fucking weirdo, you know, um, he was displeased with how some of the visions of his works had already gone. And uh, he wanted to get a little bit more intense with this one. And so was very explicit in it. And the team that built the Cenobites uh, from Hellraiser included uh, Jeffrey Portas from Nightbreed, another Clive Barker uh, book that was adapted to film, and uh, Jane Wildgoose, a real name for a British person, a costume designer who had written a line item in her notes, Repulsive Glamour. Uh, The Cenobite look that they were going for was inspired by Catholicism, punk fashion, and S&M clubs that uh, Clive Barker was kind of fascinated with. Um, I'll say that this dude, Jeffrey Portas, uh, that helped with Nightbreed, one, I don't know if you've seen that one. One of my favorite, uh, movie scenes is early on in Nightbreed, uh, there's, I want to say they're in a mental ward in a hospital and 
a guy starts talking crazy and he pulls out these uh, thumb rings that have these big blades on them and he cuts a, an oval around his face and he starts pulling off all the skin around his face and he ends up becoming a character for the rest of the movie and he's just fucking he's so much fun to have around and yeah he doesn't have he's got his face but he doesn't have the rest of his skin on his head <laughs> or like he's missing a lot of it uh and I, I i really like that effect nightbreed was kind of cheesy but also it was very imaginative uh but with hellraiser they really kind of played up the idea about uh punishing the body there's a weird thing here it doesn't kind of kind of doesn't fit into body horror because these uh, creatures that were from hell that and so they they do these things to themselves because it pleases them uh, but it's horrific to everybody else and uh, it's like when they when they come to the mortal realm they're bringing you pain as a gift and they're very explicit yeah, about that love that they're yeah. also a little weirdly bureaucratic in the first movie they're like solved the box we came now you must come with us taste our pleasures oh no tears please it's a waste of good suffering wait 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 please wait no time for argument you've done this before right many many times the Cenobites became I think kind of like a patron saint of the counterculture that is like tattoos, piercings, BDSM, things like suspension. There was even stuff in that scene, which was also a very uh, low budget uh, production uh, and kind of rushed. There was a scene where they were trying to move a couch and there's two simultaneous scene where uh, there's, there's a recounting of a sexual encounter that's going on upstairs while meanwhile downstairs another guy's trying to move a couch and uh he catches his hand on a loose nail a flagrantly loose nail yeah and just rips it wide open rips it wide open and it is it really is the simplest effect that they have yeah. whenever his hand makes contact with a nail but it's the building up of it uh and the bloodletting of it that made it actually really convincing and has always been in my mind one of the more visceral parts of that movie uh, we can all we can all talk about Frank's death, where he gets like no Frank's resurrection is what I want to talk about. Okay, okay. So early in the movie, and shit, I actually just heard that early cuts of the movie did not include this scene. They, there was a lot of cutting. They initially gave it an X rating. It's not that they shot it and it was cut out because it was too explicit. It's that the movie became a commercial success. And they uh, shot it later with a bigger budget and then included it in later uh, oh, editions. This, right, this scene. Yeah, no, the Frank Resurrection scene was the one that really stood out to me with this movie. He has been dead. And then the drops of blood uh, from his brother is enough to begin to resurrect. He needs more blood. Yeah. And yeah. that's why he enlists his uh, girlfriend, Julie. Yeah, this was this was a really, really good scene. Uh, simply done and and really you effective. start to see it rise up from the floorboards this like goo rises up from the floorboards uh -huh. and starts to coalesce coalesces into bones and a body but he's not complete mm -hmm. when he is done like rising up off the floor he needs more blood <laughs> he's to... like he's just like a he's like a dude from gray's anatomy 
and it's great they got the scene where he's like even wearing a suit and he like rubs his bloody skinless finger over her lips oh my god <laughs> so obviously in order to create the scene they had to do a lot of reverse uh, yeah uh photography where they're actually melting wax they're using bones they're melting mm-hmm. wax mm-hmm. uh it's just such i i can't even wrap my head around it it's such a good scene this like really visceral like gross yeah. impressive scene was added when more money was added to the budget <laughs> after right. the initial release of the film. It's yeah. fucking crazy. Uh, and it's so good. And we here's, got our foot in the door. We get to do that one scene that inspired the whole movie now. <laughs> the cool thing about Hellraiser 2, uh, well, Hellraiser also, I should say, uh, <laughs> is they had kind of planned for Julie, the uh, lover of Frank, right. the evil stepmom of the te- kind of teenage girl protagonist, yeah. uh, to be the real monster of this movie. Not the Cenobites, mm-hmm. not Frank, but yeah. her. Because she's just, she's conniving and scheming. And yeah, she's and leading, she's leading yeah. men up to the attic to feed their, to seduce them and feed their blood to Frank. Right. And she was the one that was slated to come back and further franchises. Which would have been really cool because up till now we've talked about like Freddie and Jason sure. and Michael sure. Myers, and we haven't really seen a female horror protagonist or, or like not protagonist. We haven't seen a female horror monster in a franchise come back again and again. Hmm, that's fair. And you know this this is played you know Julie's played by an actress who is sorry Julia Cotton is played by uh, Claire Higgins. Who did not want to do this movie initially? Uh, she, they had to approach her like three times. It's it was <laughs> it was still still pretty exploitative back then. She's so good in this movie. You know, she's trapped in like a weird psychosexual thing with this guy who's basically a half reconstructed corpse. It's you know, gnarly. Um, <laughs> yeah, Finhead like lives forever. I have a vague memory, and I could be wrong about it about her being in the sequel but not past that. She uh, may have been. But so, like briefly, I know that, that Frank was in the sequel uh, because that takes place in hell, basically, and we get to see Frank's own personal hell. I don't think I even uh, saw any of the sequels. Yeah. It's, Hellraiser 2 is worth it. Uh, I hadn't seen a whole lot of the other ones, but um, we, know that, we know that there was a large franchise, and uh, Pinhead, played by Doug Bradley, uh, has become iconic uh he was told he's like basically oh you can play one of the movers or you can play pinhead (laughs) i don't mind sitting in the makeup chair for you know this uh, is the name that i got conflated with when you were talking about doug jones last week oh okay yeah i was like wait i know a, I know a doug he was like yeah sure whatever i'll do it had no idea he was going to become absolutely iconic yeah and he he didn't even have the name pinhead in the credits of the first movie no, he was just was... like lead cenobite right exactly uh he was lead cenobite and uh later on you had three other cenobites you had fe- they had names you had, you chattering had chatterbox cenobite, butterball butterball and female and female cenobite female was also really great but i think chatterbox was or just chattering Chattering Cenobite. Oh, we all was, remember was Chattering great. Cenobite. An anecdote about Doug Bradley as Cenobite, he had these contacts to black out his eyes, so he couldn't see. I'm and sure. he was wearing this costume that was down to the floor, 
and he has some problems hitting his marks, uh, trying not to trip over uh, the costume that he was wearing mm-hmm. and not being able to see where the fuck he was going. Yeah. The, the box that they had made, this was a handcrafted box, and a few of them were made, and they were pretty expensive. And uh, at some points, the creator of it would be uh, out, out of frame, like laying on the ground in front of actors in case they dropped it because he didn't want it to break so he would have to make another um yeah jesus wet (laughs) well you know what so this takes me to our next movie, The Thing. All right. 1982, uh, John Carpenter. The Thing is going off in the other room currently. Yeah. So the the plot of The Thing is a team of research scientists in Antarctica adopt a lovable dog in need of a home. Uh, quite the little scamp, as it turns out. Hmm. This turns into a classic whodunit. No one knows whodunit or who is it and what hijinks will ensue. <laughs> that's exactly how it was presented yep <laughs> so this movie has some motherfucking pinnacle sfx this is rob Bettine. we talked about him earlier mm-hmm. he is the protege of dick smith and rick baker and uh he met john carpenter uh john carpenter on the set of the fog uh which he worked on and he becomes the SFX supervisor of The Thing at 22 years old. This is some of the most incredible practical effects that you will ever see. Principal photography on The Thing lasted three and a half months. Yeah, that's short. The FX shooting took over a year. Yeah, (laughs) shit. And at the end of all this, Rob Bettine was hospitalized with acute exhaustion Mm -hmm. double pneumonia and a bleeding ulcer wow some would argue it paid off i'm going to talk about the defibrillator scene Mm -hmm. geologist collapses dr copper brings down the defibrillator on the chest cavity which snaps open and then clamps shut tearing off his arms right yeah Uh, kurt russell hits it with a flamethrower Head survives, rises up, and scurries away. Yeah, fucking hilarious. Is <laughs> <laughs> so dope. Love that. Uh, so this is accomplished with a hydraulic mechanism. There are brace-supported fake arms full of jello and blood tubes covered by uh, dental wax. A double amputee stands in for uh, the actor for the reaction shot, which is very, very quick. Uh, geyser of green KY jelly vomits from the chest. The uh, sort of stock thing puppet rises uh, with an animatronic human head, which is radio controlled uh, for its expressions. And they actually built six of these heads uh, that take months of construction. Each one modeled after the actor's face. Uh, they're really going for a wet look with this uh, whole movie. Jam, creamed corn, Twinkie filling... <laughs> awful of course uh, uh bubblegum melted plastic a highly flammable foam rubber mm-hmm. as described in fangoria tech struggled to light continuity flame ultimately erupted in an eight-foot fireball which engulfed the puppet 
that took eight months to construct the sort of stock puppet. Uh, fortunately, no one was hurt and there was minimal damage to the puppet. A lot of these effects are uh, created to be one take effects. This was not one of them. And <clears throat> if we're talking about special effects artist uh, Robertine, so at 14, he submitted to Rick Baker his portfolio, uh, sent it to him in the mail of the uh, illustrations that he created. Uh, Rick Baker hired him on the spot. Uh, he goes on to do Legend, Total Recall, Robocop, Space, Seven, Witches of Eastwick, Fear and Loathing. And every one of those is a banger. In 2002, he disappeared. Yeah. Uh, he hasn't Wait, been... literally? Well, basically, you can say he retired. I checked. I was checking his IMDb before the show. He did one episode of Game of Thrones in 2014 after uh, a total hiatus since 2002. Hmm. Fucking walked away. And it's, it's been total silence ever since. So, like, yeah, hey, no man. one knows hats, quite what happened to Hats off to Robertine. you, though. Sounds like the life. Twelve men have just discovered something. For 100,000 years, it was buried in the snow and ice. Now it has found a place to live. Inside. Where no one can see it. Or hear it. Or feel it. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to. But it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. You guys gonna listen to Gary? He can beat one of those things! Uh, but speaking of body horror, I did want to talk about Cronenberg. His movies are very special to me. Uh, I'm not going to talk about Videodrome. Long live the new flesh. Oh, man. I'm not going to talk about Naked Lunch. Oh, God, that was insane. Mm. And, of course, Scanners... Maybe the greatest head explosion of all time <laughs> involving a shotgun hmm. and a head facsimile filled with God knows what yeah. horrible uh, shit. <clears throat> An actual cow brain, maybe? Maybe. Uh, probably. Uh, and yeah, mad cow all around the set now. <laughs> but that, uh, that, that was pretty... A lot of people haven't seen Scanners, but they have seen the memefied head explosion, and that's fine. Scanners isn't the best movie of all time. But what is the best movie of all time, possibly? The Fly. Oh, yeah. This was his biggest commercial and critical success, and more emotionally accessible. And Cronenberg is the master of body horror. Body horror hits close to home for a lot of people. Like, you can't escape your body... It's inevitably one day going to turn on you. Mm -hmm. Like statistically, you're more likely to die of cancer or organ failure than by homicidal clowns or spooky little children. I mean, it, statistically, yeah. And speaking of the brood, that I guess that includes, speaking of Cronenberg, the brood. Uh, yeah, there you go. Those spooky little children are manifestations <laughs> of body horror and you know psychological horror but so the original uh 1950s movie at the end of the day you end up with a guy with a fly head in cronenberg's the fly there's a more gradual transformation and specifically if you are chris wallace the man in charge of the fx in this movie it is a seven stage transformation process from rundle jeff goldblum to 
Brundle fly and then ultimately the fly. Right. You know, I, I just don't think I've ever given me a chance to be me. But, of course, interestingly, at the exact same moment that I uh, achieved what will probably prove to be my life's work, that's the moment when I started being the real me, finally. So, uh, listen, uh, not to wax messianic, but uh, it may be true that the synchronicity of those two events might blur the resultant individual effect of either individual. But it is uh, uh, nevertheless also certainly true, I will say now, however uh, subjectively, that uh, human teleportation, molecular decimation, breakdown, and reformation is inherently purging. It makes a man a king. From the moment I walked out of the pot, I felt like a million bucks. You know, I think I am going to have a, a cannoli after all. Waiter! He has developed a transporter device. It breaks down matter and transports it to the receiving transporter device. And he is trying to tell, I don't know, science journalist Gina Davis how great this is going to be. They end up, of course, forming a relationship. He gets drunk and enters the transporter. Unbeknownst to him, a fly has gotten into the transporter with him. Mm-hmm. This is why you should always operate in a clean room, but clean I mean, room, you know, you know, this is kind of a subversion of like Spider-Man or something too, where it's like, well, imagine if Peter Parker was initially scared of the changes in his body, which are symbolic of puberty, but then starts to feel like emboldened a, and then starts to decay, <laughs> you know, yeah. like his teeth start falling out. His fingernails start coming off and starts vomiting on his food before he eats it. When it comes to a body horror movie, well, I guess I should say first, the chemistry between Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum is palpable in this movie. Mm -hmm. People clamored for them to be paired up in subsequent movies where one of them does not uh, mutate and then have to be killed (laughs) by the other. Horrible transformation. So if you need a palate cleanser, I recommend Earth Girls are easy. They are great together. Absolute magic. Anyway... So the goal here is to keep Brundle as articulate as possible and to to keep his humanity as long as possible throughout the seven-step transformation. It's horrific. In the whole second half of this movie, there's it makes me want to cry. It's so hard for me to watch this deterioration and her concern for him. He's trying to insert her forcibly into the transport device so that they can all link together. Uh, fly man, <laughs> woman, and fetus into uh, some sort of weird super organism so they can finally be together. It is... Oh. They'll be the ultimate family. A family of three joined together in one body. More human than I am alone. No! 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 no. <laughs> Yeah, what Chris Wallace has done here is retain, uh, he's Jeff Goldblum until the final scene. His shell of a head breaks away Mm -hmm. and the fly emerges. Now it's no longer recognizable. It's a puppet. It's not Jeff Goldblum anymore. And it's horrific. It's, yeah, plenty of KY. Yeah. Plenty of mucus and all the stuff that you need uh, to make it really visceral, to make it Cronenberg. No, that's a that's a that's some top notch work. That's a great pick. Uh, it definitely it definitely captures 
really well the idea of body horror uh, and and losing losing your your humanity bit by bit. Um, As will happen to us all, probably. Yeah. The last movie I want to talk about is An American Werewolf in London, nineteen eight. It's a great one. 1981. Yeah. Uh, Rick Baker uh, did the special effects. John Landis. Look at that. Yeah, what about it? It's a five-pointed star. Well, maybe the owners are from Texas. <laughs> Remember the Alamo. I beg your pardon? Oh, he was just joking. Joking? I remember the Alamo. I saw it once in London, in Leicester Square. I mean, this is a fish-out-of-water story. This is a stranger in a strange land. Uh, this is a werewolf bar mitzvah. Uh, Landis wrote this movie uh, when he was young, while abroad as a production assistant in Yugoslavia. Came out at the same time as The Howling, which Rick Baker farmed off on his protege, Rabatine. Uh, Rick Baker was originally going to do The Howling, he gave it to Rabatine so that he could fully commit to the months of planning that the were, uh, werewolf transformation scene was going to take. Uh, this movie resulted in the first, was 1981? The first, I'm being told, Oscar for Best Makeup category, which was created after The Elephant Man got no recognition the previous year. Wow, it should have. Hmm. And The Howling and American Werewolf in London dropped the same time, the same year, basically, uh, done by so two competitors. But I just think it's kind of interesting to, if we're going to talk about werewolf transformation scenes and how incredible this is, uh, let's compare the two movies, The Howling and uh, Am- uh, American Werewolf in London. And I've I watched both of those scenes prior to this. One you can see in darkness versus the very well-lit scene in American Werewolf in London. In one, you have spooky music playing. And in the other, you have a, a, like a perkier song. I can't remember what right now, but I'll put it, I'll put it here. Uh, that deliberately offsets the scariness of the werewolf transformation scene. It's yeah. like super body horror. He's obviously experiencing a lot of guilt, too, about his friend's death. And yeah, the transformation scene is just about the best one ever committed to film that I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot of werewolf movies since then, including the Jack Nicholson one. I'd have to agree. Yeah, uh, the Jack Nicholson movie Wolf was not good. Uh, (laughs) I thought about the the Monster Squad, uh, one of them that Stan Winston, uh, the, the whole time that the Predator was going on Monster Squad was also being filmed and the Predator crew all always kind of felt like Monster Squad was the cooler crew to be on. Their werewolf transformation scene was really simply done, uh, but also kind of grotesque. I, re- I remember really liking it. Yeah. Now, so this isn't the first time we've seen a sympathetic protagonist turning into a werewolf. Uh, we both saw I was a teenage werewolf. Did you see that? No, but I have seen Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf. It's so bravely done. It's done completely naked in like super full light. Uh, Nothing is hidden. Animatronic, you know, elongating snouts. We have elongating teeth. You can physically see the The hair growing. Yeah. Growing on his body. The sound of bones crunching. 
it makes the transformations seem very painful. <laughs> Plenty of close-ups on feet elongating, hands elongating. That's mm-hmm. what a lot of us remember. Yeah. And if you get too close or light it too well, you can tell that it's animatronics. We've all seen the lazy way the animatronic band at Showbiz uh, blinks. Mm-hmm. Or the kind of jerky... Uh motions that we've seen other animatronics do in otherwise good movies you know yeah yeah do we have any examples i mean total recall kind of came to mind um yeah but that scene in total recall where character actor don't recall her name is a stand-in for arnold schwarzenegger and her head comes apart Mm -hmm. a little prematurely i guess uh that looks so good does it not yeah no i mean it, it was all pretty good yeah, no, that that was Robertine. Okay. And I I can't tell you how much I like that scene in Total Recall. You saw me standing alone. Jesus Christ! Without a dream. What? God! What? Oh! Oh! I'm So yeah, I think uh, we've been talking long enough. About to wrap it up. Uh yeah, it's there's there's so much to talk about here. Uh, I mean, honestly, we could keep there's talking a, for hours. There's a few there's a few of these movies that would deserve their own like two parter. Uh, and some of these people that have put a lot of work in. I do just want to give an honorable mention to trauma films some some super indie low budget fuck all the rules people who have made things happen and i wanted to bring up the dick puppet from tromeo and juliet uh yes and it was in another movie but i can't recall what even at this point if you're gonna maybe, make a dick puppet you need Avenger to movies. bring that back yeah but also you know um the toxic avenger originally designed by jennifer aspinall uh and she did a really great job. They ended up going more cartoonish with it later on. Um, but yeah, trauma films, keeping it real. Um, you Love know, for, you, trauma. Uh, Poultry Geist, Chicken of the Dead, that they did some years ago. Just a quick anecdote. They filmed a lot of that in a McDonald's. Uh, and then there was supposed to be a nude scene, but the McDonald's was explicit that they couldn't have anybody nude inside there so they mocked up a church basement to look like a mcdonald's for the nude scene because the entire crew was residing in an abandoned church that trauma rented out to house uh the crew at least the paid crew uh it's it's kind of a pirate organization they would have 70 to 80 people who were paid and then 300 unpaid uh extras and volunteers trauma keeping it real well, shout out to all the actors, all the creature creators, all the awesome directors, and to all the fans, uh, and uh, people like our man, uh, Patrick Charles over there in Salt Lake City, uh, who has been inspired by all of this, and uh, is kind of just pursuing a passion by doing that. Again, you can check out his Instagram, punkpat88. So this is it, folks. I'm going to give out my other thanks. Hey, thanks to Trev Rand and the Mental State Fair for giving us use of that theme song, Dying in Texas. Uh, thanks to Alex Cuervo of the Spectrostatic and also Erie Family and Hex Dispensers and a host of other bands 
that you should totally go check out, especially if you enjoyed what we're talking about on the show. You'll really like it. Thanks to KBSR. Thanks to you for listening. Uh, we really do want to hear from you. Let us know uh, what you think about these shows. And uh, if you agree, if you think there's anything that we missed in, in talking about all these movies and all oh, these creatures. Oh, we missed so much. I mean, we could start a whole different show with everything uh, that, that is in this kind of wheelhouse. But yeah, come at we, us. We don't because we both have jobs. No, uh, we couldn't literally start another show, but it it's a... Uh, it sounds more reasonable, <laughs> almost. Uh, but yeah. Uh, well, until next time, I've been Joe. I've been Jen. And we've been Greg. Bye.